somewhere my junior high and high school teachers are having a stroke right now, right? This guy knows nothing about math. But I, I really do. I, I think I don't know much about that whole math anxiety thing. I don't know if you know anybody who has it, and I don't want to, I don't want to minimize it. But I'm willing to, I'm willing to volunteer for the fact that I may indeed have uh, math anxiety. I'm not exactly sure what all the diagnostic criteria uh, are, but I'm willing to say I probably do have that. As a matter of fact, um, the only college course I ever flunked, which is not to say that I was a brilliant college student when I first started out in college. Um, you know, when I was 19 and 20 and taking my first college classes, I, you know, I was in college for the experience, not for the learning as much. And so I, I can't say that I was a great student, but the only class I ever flunked was a math class. Uh, college Algebra 1. I don't know if I have anybody in here who will agree with me on this, but College Algebra 1 is an evil subject. And uh, I, I flunked it, and, and as a result, whenever I sat down with my academic advisor at the end of the year, I said to him, is there a major uh, that I can do that does not require me to take College Algebra 1? And he looked at me and he said, surely you're not suggesting that you pick your major based off of not taking math classes. And I said, to me that makes all the sense in the world. I don't know why you're not getting this, right? But I did. I, I literally changed my major to avoid a math class. And so, like I said, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me uh, to talk about math. And, and, you know, perhaps as a person who has struggled a bit, which is putting it mildly, but perhaps as a person who struggled a bit with math over the years, uh, I've been very alert to different things that have hit the scene in terms of shortcuts, math shortcuts. I don't know, every once in a while you'd be watching uh, television late at night, can't get to sleep, and, and you'd be flipping through and you'll see an infomercial. One night I saw an infomercial on this guy's math course, and supposedly if you took this guy's math course, you would have instantly become a whiz. He was giving these kids you know, five-figure multiplications. If multiply this five-figure number by this five-figure number, and in four seconds they could rattle off to you the answer. You know, I mean, I, that sounded that sounded great to me. I was, you know, I was in, or, or, you know, in my dad's uh, lifetime, and when when he was in school, there was something called the new math that came out. I don't know if anybody in here. This was this was a while before I discovered America, but new new math came out, right? And it was going to be a, a new approach to how. Uh, kids solved math problems and even thought about math in general, um, especially during a period of time where there was kind of a thought going around that American children were sort of slipping in their competitive advantage over other, uh, over other countries, and so they really wanted to get in there and, and hone how we were developing these math skills. But the truth was, new math fizzled really quickly. There wasn't anything real special about it. And as a matter of fact, I think in the end it caused more confusion than it did anything else. Uh, and now we're, we're reliving this, right? Because now we're dealing with something called Common Core, which I, I want to just go on record as saying I know very little about, so I'm not rendering an opinion on Common Core. But I do know that we are back into another age of, hey, maybe there's a better way to do math. But you know one thing that I've always been impressed with is the sense that math is math, right? I mean, it's still, as a matter of fact, when I have read a few posts uh, on news and social media about Common Core, this is generally the, the angst behind it, is math is still math. You still are gonna come up with the same answer, and you know, the question is, how do you come up with it in the simplest possible way? But math is math. In a sense, I don't know if, if anybody's in here that would agree with me on this, maybe, you've, uh, maybe you're also like me, not a, math isn't your mother tongue, but one, one thing is for sure, math brings with it both a blessing and a curse. The curse is this, 
The curse of math is that there is one right answer, right? I mean, I loved English. I mean, I, I wanted, you know, if I could have taken all my classes in grammar and English and speech and writing, I would have totally done that. You know why? Because there's a million right answers, right? I mean, there really is. I mean, you, you know, they give you, the teacher gives you an essay. I love essay questions. Essay questions are the best. Some students tell me, I can't stand essay questions. I don't want essay questions on a test. And I think essay questions are the best. I mean, you can write, you can talk in circles all day long, you know, and you can just write a bunch of meaningless stuff. Just make sure you throw in some buzzwords about synergy and optimistic advantage of competitive business strategies and all sorts of different stuff. And by the time you're done, you know, you can really have your teacher thinking you're brilliant. You can't do that in a math class, right? Because there is one right answer. And so the teacher could care less how brilliant you are. They just want to know, are you right? So that's the, the curse of math is that it introduces the possibility of being wrong. I mean, we can take this chalkboard. By the way, isn't this a cool set? It's a massive chalkboard. We can take this chalkboard, and I can have somebody who's really, really brilliant uh, at, at, at math and so forth write some sort of uh, equation across the entire board, fill up the entire board with this massive equation. And as long as it's written properly, and as long as it's formatted in a sense that really is true to mathematical equations, Regardless of how much junk we put up there, there will still be one right answer. The blessing of math is that there is one right answer. I mean, there is not ambiguity. There is clarity. There is the fact that at the end of the day, a right answer can be reached. In this sense, math and faith are very compatible. Although I think some in the science community would disagree. I, I could go over to Wichita State University's library. By the way, fantastic library. If you haven't been to the Wichita State Library, it's a, it's a beautiful facility. You know, I could go over there and I could go into their math section and I could pull a textbook off the shelf on advanced trigonometry. And if I looked at the back of that book, I'm likely to find a whole bunch of homework exercises, right? a bunch of very advanced problems. I do not know how to answer those problems, but do you know what? I have faith that there is an answer. I, I, don't, I don't have to know how to solve every problem in the book to know that there is one right answer to all of those problems. That is a blessing. One of the things about math that is a blessing is that there is an answer. And I want to talk to you a little bit for just a moment about how this impacts our lives and how it impacts how we've gotten here to this point in our world. You know, uh, scientists who study human trends and study history, uh, have divided human history into three eras. Um, you're probably familiar with this. The, it is the, the pre-modern era, the modern era, and the post-modern era. Now, in the, in the pre-modern era, which basically comprises uh, creation up to the Industrial Revolution, the idea was that there are big questions to, that we don't have the answers to, questions about life, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? Why are we here? What is it that we're supposed to accomplish? There were transcendent questions, questions with answers that were bigger than us that were going to have to come from somewhere, and those questions were going to be answered by some higher power, by a higher source. The idea was, after all, we are here. I mean, we, we have to be a part of a bigger plan. We have to be part of a, a you know, and, and by the way, this is the era where all of the world's major religions came to be. The pre-modern era. There must be an answer. We don't have the answer. The answer will come from a higher power, higher source. 
And then at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, we, we switched, we transitioned from the pre-modern era to the modern era. The very, very big shift because it went from we don't have answers to these questions but we're going to find them from a higher source to now it's we don't have answers to these questions but there is no higher source there is no higher power and so the answer to these questions is going to come from us the answer to the questions is going to come from inside and the way that we're going to find the answers to the questions is through science and observation right this is during the period where evolution becomes kind of part of the national narrative that, that we were not created rather we evolved kind of randomly and there were all sorts of different ideas about how this was the case but everything had a scientific backbone everything had a backbone of observation and and and, and in a sense it was if i cannot feel it touch it understand it see it if i cannot observe it and scientifically rationalize it and make sense of it it isn't right and this is a characteristic of the modern era we are going to get answers to life from what we can observe from what we can experience but we know that that didn't end up being the case those answers weren't there as a matter of fact we did come up with a lot of interesting scientific discoveries there are a lot of science uh, breakthroughs that happened as a result of this but in the end we were sitting in a in a you know in the end we were we were sitting in a world that has nuclear stockpiles that has enough weaponry to blow us all off the face of the planet and yet there were no answers to life's purpose. No, none of the big, big answers to the questions that we were wanting in the first place. And so we transition from the modern era to the postmodern era, which, by the way, is where we are right now. If you've ever been referred to as a postmodern, somebody's talked about you as a postmodern, basically what it means is that you were either born or grew up in an era where the going thought was, um, we're not going to find the answers. Probably there are no answers. So just do what works for you. I don't know if that philosophy sounds familiar, but that's kind of where we are. Kind of where we are is that our culture believes there aren't really any answers. They're not going to come from a higher power. We're not going to figure them out with some big scientific equation. And so in essence, really what you need to do is just come up with what works for you and that'll be good enough. But your average second grader knows something and they learned it in math class that kind of pushes back against that. Because if, if we're in a culture that says, well, you know, whatever works for you, meaning everything is okay, right? Because an answer says, we said earlier, an answer means that there's something inherently wrong, some things are inherently right, but if the answer is nothing is, nothing is wrong, everything is okay, then what that is tantamount to saying is everything works. If everything is okay, then everything works. And a second grade student in math class goes, that's not the case. I mean, think about it. Here you are, you're sitting in Miss Wilson's second grade math class, and she says, all right, students, let's talk about this. Look at the board. Five plus two equals, uh, Miss Wilson, I feel like five plus two equals 25. Uh, no, that's, that's, that's not it. Well, but I feel like it adds up to 25. And that's right for me, Miss Wilson. I mean, that's, that's, that's the conclusion I've come to. And I think it's only fair that you allow me my conclusion. I think it's only fair that you give me the space to believe what I want to believe about 5 plus 2. That teacher's going to go, no, 5 plus 2 is 7. It's always been 7. It's always going to be 7. 5 plus 2 is 7. And if you don't understand that, you will not be able to move forward to other more complex math. See, the thing is, not everything works. But we have a culture that has gotten used to just kind of writing in their own answers. There's big problems, big questions, 
And it's kind of like, well, we tried the whole God thing, we tried the whole higher power thing, that didn't work, and we tried the whole science thing, and that didn't work. And so now we've got this big question, got this big problem, and I don't really know what the answer is, but there may not even be an answer, and after all, everything's okay anyway, so we just kind of write in the answer. And that feels comfortable. It feels comfortable to be able to say it can just be whatever it is. But there's something underneath the surface that tells us that that doesn't work. As a result of this whole writing in the answer business, we've developed a culture where a lot of people's social cause in this world is to banish the word wrong. Nothing is wrong. That is their social cause. Everybody's right in answer should be held at the same level of esteem as everybody else. Everybody else, everybody has a right to be right. But in life's most crucial situations and in life's most critical moments, we're not okay with that. I mean, I want you to imagine for a second that you go over to Kansas Heart Hospital and you're talking to your surgeon who's going to do your triple bypass. And when you talk to the surgeon, you say, all right, well, I would like to know what the procedure of this operation is going to be. And he tells you, eh, you know, I kind of just sort of make it up as I go along, you know? I mean, I sort of just kind of go with the feeling, you know, and, and, and so I can't really tell you. It's just sort of whatever I decide in the moment, you know. Kind of, a lot of it really depends on what mood I wake up in, right? You're probably not going to let that guy operate on you, right? Or if you're an accountant, right, this would be really good. You call, you call up your accountant. It's tax season, right? You want to know, you know, how much you're losing or gaining. You call up your, your accountant and say, have you done my taxes yet? Oh, yeah, I just finished that a second ago. You know, I, 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 was, I was filling out the forms. And, and that bottom line there, it says the government wants to know exactly how much you made this year. You know, I, I just picked a number that sounded good, you know? I mean, I, I kind of, you know, I kind of spun the wheel, kind of came up with a few random numbers. I drew a little heart and smiley face, and I just sort of wrote what felt right to me, right? You're going to run from that accountant as fast as you can. We would not accept write-in answers from a boss. We would not accept write-in answers from our spouse. Because when we trust someone, when something is crucial to us, we want it to be the right answer. You want that heart surgeon to have the right surgical procedure. You want your accountants to come up with the right numbers. You want your spouse to live their life towards you in a right way. And so because of this whole difference in this world where people write in their, their own answers, we're living in a world that has the fallout of a lot of bad decisions that were the result of frustration over not finding the right answers. But what if the right answers had been here all along? What if God has given us some very simple principles to teach us how to get the right answer in life? That's what this series is all about. We're going to talk about five key concepts, major, major, major truths, but simple truths that God has put into this universe to say, look, here are, these are just the way things work. And we're going to talk about them. I'm going to do this first talk. Dad's going to be back to do the rest of these. But I want to just walk you through this talk. This week, we're going to talk about the idea that God adds God adds. As a matter of fact, the Bible even has a, uh, a specific word that it uses for the fact that God adds. We call it grace, right? The Bible says because of grace you've been saved, right? God rescued us through his grace. Somebody has um, put together the idea that matches the, the letters of grace as God's riches at Christ's expense. God makes available to us that which he has available to him, not because uh, we've transacted with him or because we've done everything right, but because it is in God's heart to give. That is his grace. That is the way, he, you know, mercy is him not giving us what we deserve. Grace is him giving us what we do not deserve. God adds. I, um, 
I was traveling. Oh, I guess maybe it was last year. I can't remember exactly. And I was waiting in the little holding room, you know, there in the, after you get through security, you wait in the little waiting room to get on the plane and, and um, I have all my stuff there. And I was summoned to the throne by the queen of the flight. She's over there behind the desk, you know, and she's, you know, loading all the passengers and my name gets called, you know, Jonathan Hoover come to the desk. And I think, what have I done? You know, because I assumed there was a problem. There was a delay. They lost something of mine. They overbooked the flight. By the way, how does that even happen? How do you overbook a flight? Isn't there a finite number of seats on the plane? I digress. Uh, I, was assuming, I was assuming there was a problem. And I went up to the desk and the lady said, Mr. Hoover, would you like an upgrade to first class for free? I thought, what kind of question is that? That's like, would you like free ice cream? The answer is always going to be yes, you know? I said, yeah, sure, upgrade me, right, whatever, you know? So I, I, um, I don't fly first class. I fly coach, right? So I, you know, and I'm, I'm sort of a big, you know, I'm tall, and so I spend most of my American Airlines flights with my knees inside the seat, you know, inside the back of the person in front of me, you know? And, and so I'm used to that whole experience. And I usually sit towards the back, you know. I'm, I'm usually over the wing or, you know, because I'm, I'm very forgetful. So I'll forget to check in until everybody else has got all the prime seats, you know. So I'm sitting over the wing in the back or I'm sitting right next to the bathroom in the back of the plane or whatever. So this was a completely new experience for me. I mean, you know, when, you used to sitting, when you're used to sitting in coach, you're used to sitting behind the blue curtain of success. You know the one. That's the curtain that when you walk into the plane, it's open. And you walk through the curtain, and you go to the, as, as Tim Hawkins would say, the, sec the section for the unwashed masses. That's where I go sit. I walk past the, you know. And then comes, the, and then comes at the beginning of the flight, the stewardess comes, right? And she gets that little curtain, and she goes, whoosh, right? It's the blue curtain of success, right? So I'm used to sitting behind that. Now I'm, now I'm sitting in front of the blue curtain of success. I'm looking back there. There it is. It's like three rows behind me. And I'm thinking, this is pretty cool. I was sitting in the first class lounge. And let me just tell you, it's a little bit of a different experience in there. I mean, you know, they came out with a tray with little hot towels on it. And the lady grabbed the salad tongs, tried to hand me a hot towel with salad tongs. And I got to tell you, this was a little bit of consternation for me. I really didn't know what you're supposed to do. I mean, when you're on a plane and they give you a Coke, you drink it. When they give you a meal, you eat it. But when they give you a hot towel, what do you do with that? You know? So anyway, you know, I started wiping down my area because I thought maybe we were <laughs> supposed to clean up, you know? But anyway... Then came the meal, you know, there was, there was a meal, right? This is a short flight, but there was a meal, you know, and they came out and it wasn't just, it was on fancy plates, right? And, and it wasn't just, you know, here's a Coke in a little plastic, you know, cup with a few cubes of ice. It was like a glass and they kept coming and refilling it. And we had our own stewardess, right? There's only seven of us and we had our own stewardess the entire flight. It was craziness. It's kind of like a restaurant at 30,000 feet in the sky. And then there was the pillows and the... Blankets and the sleep masks. You haven't really experienced terror in the skies until you're sitting next to a large 50-year-old businessman with a sleep mask on who keeps turning towards you. It was a little, it was a little weird. 
First class is nothing like coach. You know what I think for most of us, we know what a coach life is like. We know what it's like to live life in the coach section, behind the blue curtain of success. Just kind of wondering, what's it going to take for my life to get upgraded? What's it going to take for me to experience life with all those ads? And I don't mean ads like the ads they put in the newspaper. I mean ads, A-D-D-S, those things that just make life extra special. What's it going to be like? What would it take to live life in first class? And here's what I want to tell you. I want to tell you that the Bible says that God always adds. But for a lot of us, we've tried a lot of other things to get upgraded. For many of us, we've been writing in our own answers. How, that's, that's one of the big questions of life. Remember I said there are a lot of questions for which we don't have answers. How do you upgrade your life? How do you experience life at a better level? Well, a lot of us have just sort of written in our own answers. And we've learned experientially that not everything works. A lot of the things that we've tried have left us farther. We're sitting farther back in the plane, not farther forward. Some of us have a coach job. And you feel like when you go to your coach job that you don't know what it would feel like to be at a real first-class place working. You feel like you're at a dead-end place with work, and you really want to experience success in the next level. Some of you are in a coach relationship, and it feels like I, you walk past the successful relationships in your life. When you board that plane, you walk past people who seem to have it all together, and their relationships seem to be going so well. And then you go back, and you sit in your coach seat, and you wonder, what is it going to take for our relationship to go first-class? I want to read you this verse out of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Their trust should be in God, who richly, that's a very important word, who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. I grew up having a needs-once conversation with my parents on a regular basis. Mom and Dad, I need a dirt bike. No, Jonathan, you don't need a dirt bike. You want a dirt bike. Okay, well then, I, I need a stereo. No, you don't need a stereo. You want a stereo. And I, for better or for worse, growing up, I learned that there is a difference between a need that's a practical thing and a want that's an impractical thing. And I understood that there is the sense that with a need, it's something that is, is you just have to find a way to make it work. But, but wants are something that come out of riches, Right? And for us, a lot, a lot of us, it's kind of hard for us to, to think about this because we don't think of ourselves as rich, but we are so rich. In our country, we are beyond rich. Right? And a want, anytime you're able to buy something that is a want, that came out of your riches. Right? That's, that's the difference between a need and a want. Needs come out of, uh, out of our means, wants come out of our riches. But notice that the Bible says, and this is why it's really important that we kind of read this in context, God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. So it's interesting. God's saying, look, I'm not just going to fulfill your needs. I'm going to do it out of my riches. And not only am I going to do it out of my riches, I'm going to do it for your enjoyment. That sounds like first class to me. God is saying, I, I, I want to upgrade your life. I want to add to your life. God adds richly, and God adds for our enjoyment. Beyond that, did you know the Bible says that whatever is truly good in your life comes from God? James 1.17, check this out. Whatever is good and perfect, whatever, and that word in the Greek is very emphatic. Anything 
that is good in your life and perfect comes down to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. Last week we talked about the fact that we live in a broken world. And the only benefits that we experience in a broken world, the only goodness, true goodness we experience in a broken world came from God. That's where it came from. So if you inventory in your life the blessings, the things in your life that really mean something, that are exceptional, that are wonderful in your life, those things, they came from God. Well now wait a minute, Jonathan. Didn't Job say that God gives and God takes away. Yes, Job said that. He was wrong. See, we, we quote these verses sometimes as a, as, a, as a sort of, you know, Job is a poetic book, so is Proverbs and uh, Ecclesiastes. And, and, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people quote from Ecclesiastes or Job. Uh, only problem is uh, you got to be careful how you do that because Ecclesiastes and Job both have more of a journal nature than they do some sort of theological lesson. When Job said God gives and God takes away, Job had not read the beginning of Job. Job does not know that Satan came up to God and said, I want to mess with this guy. He, Job does not know that it was Satan who impacted his life and caused the, the weather catastrophes that killed his kids and caused the disasters that took away his wealth. No, God does not take away. Never, ever, ever. That is not his character. God doesn't take away. God adds. God gives. Satan takes away, and that's where we're going next week. But God gives. Every good and perfect gift comes to us from God our Father who created all the lights in the heavens. God is the victim of identity theft. Man, you want to talk about a lot of companies over the course. If you're a, if you're a student of business, and I've, uh, over, the, over the past few years I've become more interested in this because, man, you want to talk about some amazing business stories. The United States has had some incredible business stories over the years. But if you're a student of business, especially uh, in the late 1800s and early 1900s, one of the things that you'll see is that, that massive companies ended because of a sort of identity theft, because of smear campaigns, and people basically saying the things that are good that are happening are not because of these people, and the things that are bad are happening because of these people. And that is exactly what Satan wants to do with God. Satan wants to paint God out to be the person who's taking away from us, even though he's the one who's taking away. And Satan wants us to think that other sources in our life are the sources of good things, so that my job is the source of good things. My job is the source of my income. No, your job is not the source of your income. God is the source of your income. Right? Well, well, you know, my wife is the source of the love that I experience in my life. No, God is using your wife as a conduit, but you have to understand your wife is not the source of love in your life. God is the source of love in your life. Any good and perfect gift comes from God. And see, we can't allow Satan to, to steal God's identity and make us think that the good gifts in our life are coming from somewhere else. Because God adds. I want to take you to John chapter 4. And you need to know that if you, if, if you ever were to talk about a postmodern person in the Bible, we're getting ready to look at this story. To go through the, God said, Jesus said, we've got to go through Samaria. Now, you need to understand something about Samaria. Samaria was um, a place that no self-respecting Jewish teacher would travel through. They're going to go around. There was a way to travel around, you know, uh, to get to Galilee. And, and so they could have, you know, going from Judea to Galilee, they could have they taken the long route. But... 
But Jesus said, no, we're going, to take, we're going to take the direct route. Now, the reason that people would take the long route is because, because Jewish people considered Samaritans to be half-breeds. They felt like they were a, a huge um, compromise of spiritual life because God's people had married with people who had other gods. And so it was, it was, a, it was a terrible thing. Uh, the Jewish people um, really looked down on these people. They referred to them as dogs. Um, and, and, but, but Jesus is saying, we're going to go through town. We're going to go through town in, in Samaria. Right? So they... They go through, and they end up at a well, or Jesus does. The rest of the disciples have gone to go get something to eat. But Jesus ends up at a well in, in John chapter 4, and he meets up with this lady. The Bible says in verse 6 of John 4, Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Now, noontime was not a time people came and got water from the well. You need to understand, this was, this was a very hot part of the day. And so you, you didn't go draw water from the well at noon. That, that would have been a really uncomfortable time to do it. And so, and on top of all of that, one of the things that we've learned, archaeologists have kind of given us the sense that, that watering, the term watering hole has been something that has happened for ages and ages and ages. And so there was kind of a social gathering that would happen of women who would come late in the day to, to go draw water and they would socialize and hang out together. And so this is not a time that you would expect a Samaritan woman to come up to the well, but sure enough, verse seven, the Bible says, soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. He was alone at that time because the disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised for the Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. And she said to Jesus, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now here's what I want you to get. Jesus said, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. You know the story. If you've read John 4, you know that this gal that he's talking to has had five husbands. She's been married five times before, five times it didn't work out. Now she's living with a guy who's not even, she's not even married to. She's had a rough life. She's had a life where she's written in the answers her whole life. And she grew up learning that that was what you do. Like I said, the Samaritan world, that was like postmodern America times you know, squared. I mean, this is, this is a world where people believe just worship whatever God you want, you know, uh, and, and just do whatever feels good. That's one of the reasons why the Jews had such a hang up over Samaritans because it was a different lifestyle. And, and so she had spent her entire life learning. You just write in the answers, but that hadn't worked for her. She's not showing up when all the rest of the women are showing to the well, because she doesn't want to be part of that social scene. She's an outcast. She doesn't want to hear all the wagging tongues of people who think she's a terrible person. She's heard enough of that. So she's coming to the well and noon so she can miss all of that. She's trying to live as much in her shell as she possibly can because this is not a, she's not in a good place right now. And she meets Jesus and here's a woman who's so used to writing in all the answers and now this guy has totally floored her because he's asking for a drink and she says, why in the world are you asking me for a drink? And then he says to her, if you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you. You would ask me and I would give you. Hmm. It's as though Jesus is saying, you don't understand. God adds. I want to add to your life. Jesus said, you're going, about, you're going about this all wrong, and I think I can relate. In my life, when I've struggled to be successful in different areas, if God were to show up and tell me I was going about things wrong, I wouldn't have much trouble agreeing with him on that. Writing in the answers has never really worked for me. But Jesus said, first, I, I, you don't know what I want to give you. First of all, beyond everything else, you don't know the gift that I want to give you. We talked about this last week. So many of us have developed the belief that God really wants to get something from us. I mean, you know, maybe you've, maybe you've been in a religious tradition where it was money, money, money. God wants your money. God wants your money. It's always like God wants to get something from us. 
I, I don't have time to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it anyway. It's one of my fa- favorite stories my dad used to tell when, he, when, when I was a kid. He was preaching. But there's a story of a woman who was going through O'Hare Airport. She was on her way to catch a flight. And she stopped at one of those uh, um, snack shops where they charge you eight times what the rest of the world pays for things. And she stopped and she got a package of Oreo cookies, right? And a newspaper, and she was going to sit down and wait for her flight. She goes, she goes over, and she sits down in the waiting area, and she sits next to this uh, nice-looking older gentleman, and and uh, she takes out her paper, and, and and she reaches to grab one of the Oreo cookies, except when she reaches out to grab one of the Oreo cookies, the guy sitting next to her grabs one of them, and just smiles at her. You know? and she's thinking, what in what in the world, you know? She doesn't say anything, not create waves, just, just let it go, just let it go. So she takes a cookie, you know, and, and she eats it. And she reaches out, this is a little later, she's been reading the paper a little bit, she reaches out for another cookie. And sure enough, before she reaches out for another cookie, this guy reaches out and grabs another cookie and smiles. You know? And she's thinking, this guy's a psychopath. He's not only taking my cookies from me, he's smiling about it, right? So a little more of this goes on. They do this, you know, a little bit more. Finally... There's one cookie left. And she goes to grab it, and he grabs it. And then he holds it for a second, and he looks at her, and he takes the Oreo cookie and splits it in half, and gives her the side with the cream on it, and smiles. And she just had had it. She slammed her purse shut. You know, she went, she, she was getting ready to get on her plane. She was so upset. And the, the lady asked her, she'd take out her plane ticket so she could scan it and get on the plane. So she opens up her purse and gets the ticket out and realizes her Oreo cookies are still in the bag. She'd been eating that man's cookies the whole time. And see, this is where we mess up with God. We think God's trying to take our cookies. But we've been eating his cookies the whole time. God adds, God doesn't want to take from us. God wants to give to us. Why is it so difficult? Sometimes it's so difficult for me to understand that because I really think God wants my time. God wants my finances. God wants my resources. No, God, God, yes. Is there a point at which God says, hey, invest in me and I'm going to, but what does the Bible say? God says, try me in this matter and see if I don't open up the floodgates of heaven and pay you back with a blessing that's so big you won't even be able to receive it. No, God doesn't want to take from me. God wants to give to me. God always adds. Think about all the good gifts God has given you. Imagine what else he could do. Second, I'm, I'm skipping. I apologize, tech team. I'm skipping quite, past quite a bit of this. Secondly, he says, you don't know who I am. If you knew the gift I have for you, and if you knew who I was, if you knew who I was, you would ask, and I would give. He's saying, because I've been the, the victim of identity theft, you don't really understand who I am. So many of us struggle with that. And did you know that the Bible tells us that God's power can be limited in our life because of our misperception of him? But check this out. Perhaps the, mo- perhaps the most familiar verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Listen, if you ever struggle to understand who God is, you just go back to John three sixteen, because that is who he is. Who is God? God is the one who loved the world so much that he sent his son to die for us so that we could have an eternal future in heaven with him. That is God. That is the epitome of God's character. God loves, God gives, God rescues. He said, if you only knew that that's who I was, you would ask me and I would give to you. And I'm, I'm going to be in overtime, but I'm going to try to do this really quickly. He said, 
if you, if you knew the gift, and if you knew who I was, you would ask. Can I ask you a very straightforward question? How many of us have used God as a plan B? Not asking God, I might ask God if I got desperate enough. If things got bad enough, I might ask God. But I don't, I don't start off by asking God. But check out what the Bible says James, in James 1 verse 5. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He'll not rebuke you for asking. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is as unsettled as a wave of the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Imagine, I, they call me up to the desk. Mr. Hoover, would you like a first-class upgrade for free? Yeah, I, no, wait, wait, wait. Hang on. Maybe I'll just go ahead and pay for that. No, wait, wait, no, I'll take it. No, wait a minute. Hang on. Maybe I'll just ride and coach. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Maybe I'll make a phone call and see if somebody else wants to give me a first class. No, wait a minute. I'll go ahead and take it. I would drive that person crazy and I would not be sitting in first class. But that is what I do to God. God says, do you want me to bless you? Sure, yeah, that's great. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. Uh, maybe I'm going to go this direction. Maybe I'm going to try to find success by doing this in my life. Or maybe I'm going to try, maybe I'm gonna try to leverage this connection. Or maybe I'm going to try to leverage this financial success. Or maybe I'm going to, or, or, you know, maybe, maybe, no, God, you know what? I will let you do that. I, I will let you, but I don't know. No wonder. I mean, the Bible says the person who's divided in their loyalties is so unstable that it affects everything they do. You know, the story is told, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a urban legend, really. So I'll say that off the get-go. There's an urban legend of a, a lady who was getting in her car late at night in a parking garage. And, and uh, you know, when she had parked, there were tons of cars everywhere. But she'd been at work for a long time. She goes out to the parking garage, there's nobody there. Kind of dark. And there's only one other car in the parking garage. Kind of spooky. So she gets in her car very quickly, shuts the door, locks her car to make sure her doors are all locked. And, and, but immediately as she starts her engine, she notices the other car starts its engine. And the lights are shining on her. Just I mean, it's so freaky when you're, it's you and one other person and they turn their car on at the same time you turn your car on. But she's trying not to let herself get freaked out by that. She's trying not to, you know, not be weirded out. And she, she you know, starts driving out of the parking garage and this person comes right in behind her, driving right in behind her. She thinks, oh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm letting my imagination get the best of me. So she thinks, you know, I'm just gonna make a couple turns and just watch what happens. And every time she makes a turn, this person turns right, right in behind her. Now she's not even trying to get home. Now she's just making all kinds of weird pathways, just trying to get rid of this person. But no matter where she turns, this person is right behind her. And she is genuinely freaked out. Now she's playing through all these contingency plans in her head. What do I do? What do I do? And then she gets the idea, I'm just going to pull up to a stop station. You know, I'm going to find the first quick trip I can. I'm going to pull up and I'm going to run like crazy. I'm going to throw my door open. I'm going to run in there and tell them that somebody is chasing me. And so she pulls into the first quick trip she sees, and she does. Man, she darts out that front door and runs inside to tell people in there that, that she's being followed. And she notices that as she's darting outside of her car and running out, there's the guy in this car that's been following her jumps out of his car. But instead of chasing her, he runs up to the back seat of her car and throws open the door and ends up in the scuffle with somebody in her car because it turns out he had seen a serial rapist climb into her back seat and had followed her the whole time because she didn't want her to, he didn't want her to get hurt. See, so often I think God, it's so easy to think that God is chasing us because he wants to scold us or because he wants to harm us or because he wants to take something away from us. And God's saying, no, I just want to rescue you. I want, I want to add to your life. You, you, ask, you ask your friend, the teenage lifeguard, how easy is it to rescue someone without getting in their personal space? 
See, God does want to get in our space, but it's because he wants to rescue us. Check this out. This is the last thing I'll tell you. Ephesians 3, 18 through 20. Paul says, and may you have the power to understand as all, good, as all God's people should know. How wide, how long, how high, and how deep God's love is. May you experience the love of Christ though it's too great to understand fully. Then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. Now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. See, that is God's nature. That is what God does. God does more. God adds. And that's what he wants to do in your life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you simply do add to our lives, that you love us, that you are the God who saves, you are the God who rescues. In this moment, Father, I pray you would speak to hearts. Heads are still bowed and eyes are still closed. I know I'm in overtime, but I want to give you a chance to reach out to God. If that's never happened for you, I'm going to say the words to a very simple prayer that you can use to pray to God. You can say it silently in your head to reach out to him and say, God, I want to have a connection with you. I want to put my trust in you. Ready? Here we go. Dear Jesus, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you died for me and that you want to add to my life. I know I do wrong things. I know I can't get to heaven on my own. Today I accept your free gift of heaven and forgiveness. I believe in you, Jesus. In your name, amen. All right, everybody look this way just for a moment. If you just prayed that prayer, would you do us a favor? Take that little talk to us card that you received. Check the box that says, I pray to receive Christ. Take it back to guest services. We have a little packet we'd just like to give you before you leave. Thank you so much for being here. Next week, we continue on with simple math.